Hello, welcome to London Property Alliance's podcast series. I'm Emily Lavrith, Marketing Director at Built ID and Vice Chair of the CPA Next Gen Committee. I'll be your host for this episode and today we'll be discussing how we can make the built environment accessible for all. We'll explore the influence that Central London's inspiring built environment can have on shaping and developing future talent. And we'll explore how the UK's education system can better prepare our young people for a creative career in property. And last but not least, what London's real estate companies can do to promote the sector to young and diverse students. I'm really excited to be joined today by Neil Pinder, who has been a teacher for over 25 years, teaching mainly in inner city schools and has worked with London Open House for much of that time. Neil is currently Head of Product Design and Architecture at Graffney School in South London, where he introduced architecture to the curriculum. Neil is responsible for a number of initiatives, including Celebrating Architecture, which has received national recognition. He is also an Arkwright interviewer for a prestigious engineering scholarship at Imperial College and Cambridge University. And something that I'm really excited to hear more about, Neil developed and implemented a successful initiative called GLAM, which stands for Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Architecture and Me, which he's going to tell us more about later. Finally, Neil also founded Homegrown Plus, an agency that will promote and champion young architects and creatives from non-traditional and traditional backgrounds. It will be a place where architectural firms of all sizes can come to source the best talent available from across the community. Before we get started, I should remind you all that today we are releasing the Diversifying Real Estate Report on Race, which has been commissioned by the CPA and WPA Next Gen. The guidebook will inspire and inform WPA and CPA members so that together we can make our profession more representative of London's diverse communities. I can't recommend enough that you read and digest the guidebook as it contains incredibly valuable insight and guidance on how individuals and companies can work towards increasing well-needed diversity and inclusivity in our industry. So without further ado, Neil is going to tell us more about the importance of education and informing young people about the role of the built environment in our day-to-day lives, and in turn, the opportunities for central London's real estate sector to inspire the next generation of industry leaders from diverse backgrounds. Hi, Neil. So I'll start by asking, how did you get into teaching and how did you become so passionate about improving diversity and inclusion in architecture, higher education and the built environment? Uh, Good afternoon or good evening or good morning, depending if you're listening to this in various stages. Uh, Hello, Emily. Thank you very much. And to the London Property Alliance for giving me this space and then asking me to invite me to come along to do this podcast. Hopefully, young people, if they listen to it, will get infused and uh, link into me on my LinkedIn uh, or my Instagram and hopefully get inspired to get into the built environment, which I think is really, really important if you're a non-traditional and a traditional young person. I first got into teaching, uh, shall I say just before that, I was a DJ and I believe that being a DJ was fundamental to my sort of makeup because it allowed me to be able to talk to people in large groups, small groups, groups, to be really personal with people. And you you have to have build up a bond with people instantly. So that gave me a a really good sort of opening uh, into getting into teaching. But prior to that, I had a really good inspirational teacher, an art teacher who was really exceptional. My art teacher and my music teacher, should I say, because I, I had a choice of going studying music or going to art school. But my art teacher won, and he he told me about Matisse, and he gave me such a view of artistic view of life that I thought, yes, I'd like to be a sculptor. So I started off wanting to be a sculptor and um, going to art school, and from there 
it just progressed into looking at three-dimensional sort of designs because I specialized in uh, silversmithing and three-dimensional designs. And from there, I just it just led me into looking up at buildings, looking at creativity and wanting to basically uh, reproduce various bits of art I've seen, various bits of interiors that I've seen in people's houses and in magazines, etc. And then while I was DJing, I had the opportunity to work part-time in a secondary school. It was an all-boys school. And in this Catholic school, uh, I thought they were so strict, the teachers. And if the kids did something wrong, they had to copy pages out of the Bible. And I was thinking to myself, no, no. And so one day the, the teacher came late and, and, and I just basically got the kids to do some work and some stuff. And the head of um, technology at the time, he said to me, nearly ever thought of uh, going into teaching? I said, no, not really. And because teaching was going to interrupt my social life at the time. So what happened is he said, look, when do you DJ and when do you do so? And so I said, well, I, I DJ and I work Monday nights because I run a club on Monday nights and I have to have Friday off because I have to promote my club on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So from there on, he said, right, what we'll do, we'll fit you in in the middle and you could come and work as a technician. And while working as a technician, you can work alongside me and see how I do the classes and, and you could help me in the classroom. And I've got really good buzz from the kids. And it was, I mean, it was exciting. They learned. And some of them, even now today, are still my friends. And then what happened, I think the change happened when one of my friends said to me, Neil, could you design some lighting for me in my house? And there was this inspirational lighting uh, shop called John Cullen. And he was like at the forefront of lighting. And because, and this was based off the King's Road, coincidentally, where I was working and partying at the same time. And I remember seeing this shop had no lighting I'd ever seen before and um, I used to pop in there and they used to give me loads of ideas and then I started designing lighting for my friends houses and then from there I started working in glass because I, I started to be attracted to glass and at the same time I, I started to do less DJing and more teaching so I'd uh, uh, a, a teaching certificate while I was uh, do, working as a, a technician. And uh, it led on and led on. And then eventually I became a qualified teacher. I did a QTS qualified teacher status, became a teacher. And my passion was always creativity design. So I was teaching product design or design and technology. But at the same time, I was still doing bits of my friends' houses, etc. And then it just seemed to organically grow that I would say to the kids, have you thought of being, about being an architect? And many of them would say, what's an architect? I said, well, they do this, this. And I was reading as I was telling them. So they were just about one step ahead of me. So I was never, you know, that super intelligent to be uh, reading off building codes and everything else. So, and I would show them loads of pictures. And then I would say to them, these are the buildings that I like. And I like quite brutalist architecture. And the kids seemed to vibe off of that. And then from there on, I started to get students involved in architecture. Then they started going to architectural school to study architecture. And then slowly over the last, I'd say, focus on the last 15 to 20 years, the kids have been, young people have been coming through now. And now they become 
fully-fledged architect. I'm linked into approximately 40 different architectural practices up and down the country and over 40 different universities up and down the country from uh, Scotland right the way down to Brighton to uh, Falmouth to East Anglicite and over 20 different architectural or, or bodies of that sort. And so th the network has grown and grown. And whereas now a lot of young people come to me to, uh, to, to be inspired and look at architecture as a way forward. That's amazing to hear, Neil. And teachers, I think, have such a sort of effect on all of our lives. And, and you can see that you're so passionate about sort of what you do and that really sort of shines through. And I remember teachers at my school, I actually didn't really like history, but my history teacher was so passionate and she sort of really cared about everything sort of that she did. And with history, I ended up loving history and went to sort of do my A-levels in it. And, and I think that sort of um, passion and inspiration really is amazing for young people. Um, so it's, yeah, it's amazing to hear um, about I your think, journey and how you got into it. Yeah, I think teachers are a gateway that, uh, that is undervalued really, because if you have a, a good teacher, or a teacher that you get on with. I mean, they don't even necessarily have to be absolutely amazing, brilliant, and, and, and with all the flip charts and everything else. But if you see a teacher that somehow you feel affiliated to in some short, sort of way, and, and they're singing your tune, suddenly the lessons that you don't like become the lessons that you do like. And yeah. you begin to enjoy them, and you begin to feel, well, it isn't that complicated, you know, like history. To retain history, you know, um, you, you most probably with this teacher, the teacher said to you X, Y, Z, but there were certain things that the way they said it, the way they communicated their subject, they made this subject come alive. And I think that's the secret of teaching. Unfortunately, nowadays, and I just tip on this, um, it's more about assessment, 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 assessment. Yeah. And that sort of interpersonal relationship between teachers and students is beginning to di diminish because you're teaching from a set syllabus that you have to get in on this time, get this amount of work in, and you have to study this, 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 tick, 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 tick. So there, there isn't a lot of time for creative thinking unless you tend to be a maverick like myself. <laughs> and I get, in, I get in trouble all the time, so... <laughs> It comes with the nature of it, yeah. But I guess that's why you probably inspired hundreds and thousands of kids because you are so passionate and do go a bit off the sort of traditional track. So, yeah, it's, it sounds sort of amazing, the work that you're doing. Another question that I had, Neil, was do you think that the built environment sector has become a more or less welcoming place for non-traditional and traditional people in the 25 plus years that you've been teaching in inner city schools? I would say that it's become much more of an open place. Uh, um, I wouldn't say it's become more of a welcoming place because welcoming means that, you know, that there is zero or next to zero sort of discrimination, whether it be gender, class, race, ethnicity, religion, etc. Because I think that society itself has become a bit more polarised due to the fact of, of, of what governments are being in like for example, this government, uh, the, the American government, I think people are, are much more entrenched now in their sort of uh, ideology as opposed to being a bit more liberal 
in their ideology. Although there's a, there's a massive groundswell, and I call it below the line of people who are actually believing that we can make change. And I feel those people are making the change without the without the big people are making it for them. So I say to people, you know, there's something called parallel working collaboration. And like myself, to work things out without having to take it to the big bot first and let us still, you know, calculate things. So for example, that's why getting back to education, I don't approach the lecturers. I don't approach the dean. I approach, and on my LinkedIn, I've got students because students is the groundswell that will make the change. And by doing that in the industry, it isn't the big bosses that are going to make the change from what I can see. It's going to be the actual day-to-day people that make the changes. And over the last 25 years, I don't think it's come on that much, but over the last year, because of uh, the pandemic, where people have actually stopped taking time out and actually thought about how do I want to live my life for the next X number of years. So the whole emphasis over the last, you know, 400 years is beginning to change through these parallel working collaborations and parallel working systems. And in, in, in conjunction with that, we had Black Lives Matter, which came at a time when people were still questioning, well, what is really going on during the pandemic? And suddenly, Black Lives Matter opened up. It wasn't just about Black. It was about the, the people who were the disconnected, the people who felt on the fringes. It was about people who were discriminated against, be they class, sexuality, religion, etc. And all of those people came together around the world to form a collaboration, as I said, parallel working collaborations, where they had affinity with this person, this person, this person, this person. And now... Over the last year, we're seeing debates like what we're having now, podcasts like what we're having now, starting to to come about and be live. And it's only through what we are doing, through these podcasts, through Zoom, that the big people are beginning to take a a little bit more of an interest because they realise that unless they get involved right now, they're going to be left behind. And I and I talk and I lecture in universities about power, control and money. And I tell young people they have the power and uh, they have the control, but you just have to believe in yourself. And from there, you can earn the money. But the big guys, they do have power because they have the money and the control at this precise moment. But I think things are beginning to shift. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. I know that EG did a race diversity survey recently and nearly 70% of respondents said that they didn't feel like the sector is genuinely trying to increase spam representation. So they felt essentially like people are sort of not paying lip service, but big bosses are ticking boxes potentially. And I do somewhat agree. And I think that it needs, as you say, to start at a grassroots level with the sort of smaller voices coming together and making a change from from the bottom up potentially. That's not to say I don't think some companies have have done sort of good work in the last sort of year or so, but I think there's a long, long way to go. And I think the way to do that is, as you say, starting at, at the bottom essentially with the people who are potentially sort of more junior or, 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 as you say, students, younger people coming together to really make a change and, and make the people at the top listen. I also think young people coming into the industry are going to sort of be more 
passionate. I don't know if passionate is the right word to use, but in terms of asking what the companies that they're applying to are doing about inclusivity and diversity. Because as you say, if people applying for a job and they don't see anyone who looks like them, why on earth are they going to want to work there? So people in companies need to start making the the right steps now and genuinely making change within their companies to make sure that they can attract diverse talent in the future. Otherwise, it's just going to be sort of a vicious circle. That brings me on to the phrase non-traditional and traditional, which I hadn't heard very many times before, but I know it's a phrase that um, you use a lot. How, how did that come about? Well, uh, non-traditional and traditional came about because I was sick and tired of hearing this word B-A-M-E because it was a word that really, really just made me feel uncomfortable because, you know, you black, Asian, ethnic minority, they lumped all black people from different diasporas in one group. Then they lumped all Asian people together in another group. And ethnic and minority, they were just far away. And I thought to myself, you know, in the Asian of continent, you've got Chinese, you've got Indian, Malaysian, you've got all of these races and communities and people, actual people, living people who are individuals. They've got their own culture. They've got their own habits. They've got their individuality about them. And then you've turned over to the black race and you've got the Caribbean, you've got Africa, you've got people all over the world who, you know, in Europe, and you just lump them all together just for convenience sake and and, and come up with this acronym and say, here you are, you're all the same, bam. So traditional, spoke about it with my students and I said to them, you know, what do you feel about it? And I've got a lot of feedback, negative feedback by using that word. And this was on the ground feedback from my students that they weren't happy with using the word BAME. And so I thought, how can I make them feel more wanted and, and make them feel part of something? So we said non-traditional. So I'm a per- per- perfect example of a non-traditional person who has got into education. My parents came over in the wooden rush um, from there. My my mother was a was a nurse. My dad, my father was a, a carpenter, and um, I was the first one in our family to go to university or go to and do a degree. Me and my twin brother, we were the first. So we come from a non-traditional background, but our parents still had traditional middle class ideals for us that they wanted us to be somebody, something, get education as a way forward, uh, and they fell into the traditional of things where they would um, say, right, you've got to be a a doctor, lawyer, accountant. And these are all good professions, but they're safe professions. Creativity across the board isn't seen as a good profession. It's seen as somebody, something to be a hobby. But creativity, and I say to my young students, changes life. Creativity gives you life. So that's the non-traditional. So the traditional people, uh, people from all different color, races, creeds, religion, who parents have been to university, have had the, uh, have had been fortunate to, to to be educated to that level degree, but they still don't believe that creativity is anything that should be worth uh, pursuing as a career. So there is the. And, and the reason why I say that is because teaching in a, in a secondary school, our school, my school is Graveney School 
is approximately 2,500 students. We have approximately 56 different dialects and languages being spoken. Uh, we have a sixth form of about six, 700 if it's around there. And when students have to choose their subjects, their, their, their subjects for GCSEs, the parents have been so conditioned that you've got to get a straight A subject and you've got to do this. And when we, when I say to them, product design, which I teach, as I say, or do art, a lot of parents think, oh, art, is that really uh, going to make you give you a living? And so they create these negatives in young people's head that creativity isn't something that's worth doing. So there you have it. You have the traditional, you have the non-traditional. So we've got some of the same traits. There is commonality between the two. But the, the non-traditional, basically, are people like myself. We come from parents who first-generation university, et cetera, et cetera, that we've been to. And the, and the traditional have been to university. But we both end up in the same place. Talking about sort of creativity and, and students knowing um, sort of what they want to do. Um, I mean, I had no idea what I wanted to do at GCSE level and what my career sort of, I had an idea of what my career wanted to be. Um, I wanted to go into the creative industry, into fashion, and here I am, ended up in real estate. <laughs> Talking to um, students at a recent WPA Next Gen webinar um, hosted for students at the University of Westminster, over 90% knew what an estate agent did, but only a third had heard of what an asset manager was. From your experience in schools, what do you think young people think of um, when they think of careers in real estate? Because it certainly wasn't something that I'd thought of. I knew what a property developer was um, when I was sort of doing my GCSEs, but that's about it. And an estate agent, but I had no idea what an asset manager was. How do you think we can change this sort of conversation and, and teach students that real estate is an incredible industry to be in? Join some of my programs and spread the word of creativity. <laughs> that is the short answer. But the real answer is, it's another answer, not the real answer, but another answer is, I did a survey today because it was the first day back at school. And I said to my students, so I t today I taught year 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And so that's approximately like from 11 years old to 15, stroke 16 years old. And I asked them, I said to them, what is an asset manager? And they looked at me blank. And I said, what do you think it is? an asset manager. And the, and the first thing that comes to mind usually is some sort of financial industry managing, managing stocks and shares and, and bonds and stuff like that, asset managers. And, and, and we have a diverse group of students that we teach. And then the, the disparity with the selling of real estate is it's not even on their radar if you're talking about real estate. Because real estate is quite an American word from what my students have, have said me back. Real estate, you're talking about property. You know, I give them clues and I say to them, so we're talking about property development, etc. And then they start to get on the right path. But the first thing they always say is architecture and surveying. So they're the first two real sort of heads up that you have. And in terms of selling it, as a career, I don't think there's been any, in my view, in my, personally speaking, it, in my time of teaching, I don't think I've ever had anybody come in or ask me to talk about real estate in my school. I've had surveyors, architects, landscape designers, etc. But not anyone has ever said to me, Neil, let's do a lesson on real estate or let's explain 
some of the, the, the jobs in real estate. And let, 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 let's open this discussion because it's quite a closed shop class led thing. And you usually get the invite through a parent or a friend of a parent or somebody who's connected to asset management, et cetera, et cetera, who use those terminologies. It's about wording. How do you word it? How do you spell it? And it's usually done by people who already know of somebody in the profession that that's how it's done. But whereas London Open House was given to me by Victoria Thornton and and sent an email to the school I was in about 15 years ago, a bit more than that. And I looked at the email, architecture, I thought, yes, great. I can get students to design product, which is product design, in an architectural way. So what I did is I connected to architects got them to come in school and do some drawings and show how things are worked. And it just led from there. But as I said, um, in terms of real estate, nobody's ever said that in my 20 odd years of teaching. Nobody's ever come to me and said to me, look, Neil, uh, what do you reckon about this? So it's one of these subjects that I think the people who have been leading it have been so complacent and sitting back that, yes, we don't need to reach out because we've got enough people coming in. I, I think that is mainly the case. That's why this situation is where we are today. I agree. I think it, it's always sort of a friend of a friend or, or someone, as you say, that you know. It was never something talked about in schools or that I'd heard about in, in school either and is obviously still the case now. But there's so many different sort of roles in real estate so I work in community engagement there's communications and membership all these different sort of aspects of real estate that young people can get involved in that that just aren't spoken about and and there's so many developments and things going on in London in particularly and that people can get involved in how how do you think we can use the fabric of a place like London to promote change and promote the industry to young creative people I think first of all um bit of rebranding <laughs> and 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 make make the sub make make it a bit more trendy make it a bit more accessible that's how architects has done it over the years they've they've connected to people like myself and now you've got quite a few different programs which are going with architectural programs which are there to infuse people from non-traditional backgrounds and traditional backgrounds to get into architecture and show what a fantastic career you can have in it. And it's a multifaceted career. There's not one bit of the career that you could say, you just do this. You could do this, you could do this, you could do this. And that's the beauty about it. I mean, architecture is by no means got the whole secret the whole lockdown there's still a lot of room in, in terms of architectural development in terms of getting uh, people from non-traditional backgrounds to join the profession because if you look at the architectural industry it's, it's run by basically 70 percent around there ish of white males so they still ha- have a hell of a lot of work to do in terms of getting more people into the boardrooms into the decision making not just as we go back to that word tick boxing and have them at a certain level and say, right, you're here, we got you, and you're for the quota of X, Y, Z. So they've still got a long way to go. And But the property, property industry or real estate still has to, they're at the starting point, they're even further back. 
Yeah, absolutely agree. I think that they're making steps towards improving sort of diversity at sort of middle management level and, and entry level, but there's still a very, very stark contrast and, and lack of diversity at, at the top, which is, is where, yeah, it needs to change, definitely. For some roles in real estate, such as architecture that we've touched on quite a lot, um, they require a creative education. How do you think we can better prioritise creative subjects and ensure that the opportunities to become involved are open to all students? You see, at this precise moment, there's this massive debate in education. And we're going to look at the political side just, just for a couple of seconds, if not. I mean, if not, you won't have a full scope of it. So we've got a government in that has brought in this thing called Progress 8. Progress 8 is for math, double English, triple science, uh, EBAC, which is uh, humanity, geography, history, and a language. Now, if you're doing, uh, if you want to be creative, you can see that there's no creative subjects in those eight. And some schools, I mean, some schools have actually got rid of product design because it's too expensive. They've got rid of food technology because it's it is too expensive. They've got rid of textiles because it's too expensive. They've got rid of drama or they've put drama as a twilight session. They've got rid of art or put art as a twilight extra session that the kids are coming in and do. So subsequently, you're getting a whole generation of students from, from our sector who have been excluded from, from this industry. And the private schools, on the other hand, they can do what they want within, you know, within sort of reason. But let's not forget, um, the private in, uh, uh, creativity in London alone is worth 56, pre-pandemic, 56 billion pounds a year. I really, really feel sorry for this generation. The downside of the pandemic, it means that th- th- this government is, is trying to call a steamroller Extra maths, extra this, extra that, but it's all their agenda. And kids can only learn a certain amount. I mean, I say to my kids, I stand in front of my class and I say to my kids, look, I am absolutely useless at maths, but if I have to work something out, I either Google it or ask a friend. And in today's society, you don't need to be brilliant at maths. You just need to be able to add up, take away and do a couple of those other things. You don't need to be a genius at Pythagoras. You just need the basics. And the creative people, most creative people I know, dare I say it, tend to agree with my thinking that creative people, yes, you do need a great education. Yes, you do need the fundamentals, but that shouldn't be the end all and be all of your life. That's really interesting. Thanks, Neil. I know that we've done, well, I know that the London Property Alliance have done a lot of work on uh, soft skills and how to bring creativity into the industry. So it's really sort of interesting that you've said that and I completely agree. So the London Property Alliance represents more than 400 organisations working in central London's built environment sector. How can members of CPA and WPA use their resources, networks and influence to make sure that the built environment is accessible to all Londoners? especially those from non-traditional and traditional backgrounds. What do you think you would say your top three calls are to our members? I would say, number one, you've got to get in at grassroots levels. That is the must. Grassroots grassroot levels means not going down a tick box exercise. You've got to be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about it, you will be absolutely discovered and bought out by the young people. Investment is always one of the key parts of any sort of program initiative moving forward. You've got to make sure that you 
have key initiatives and money behind those initiatives to enable them to look at, uh, say, a five-year program. Don't jump out at the first year if you're not getting the results. Don't jump out at the second year if you're not getting the results. You've got to look at it on a sustainable sort of basis where um, you're in it for the long term if you really want change. And, and that I'm really serious about. If you really want change, splash the cash in the right direction and make sure you're into it for the long term. And the last one, make sure that the people you employ represent the society, this brilliant society that's called London. Don't just get so-and-so because they've got a Cambridge degree or Oxford because they've got an Oxford degree. Look around. And, and as I've done in architectural practices, how do you judge? How do you make the criteria as well? Get them all to put a CV, do blind CVs and, and make sure you've got your criteria and make sure that the people that you get into the interviews pass all of the, the, the little tests to begin with, but then after see how passionate they are delivering the, delivering the message. Because unless you have people that are passionate who are going to be there in their job for two, three, four, five years, not just one year and then see another job and go to it because it's got more money, you're never going to do anything. If the, if, if they keep plant, if they keep hot seating every year, you're never going to get anywhere because every year you go back to the same people, they'll be thinking, Oh no, not another group of people hot seating on me. You've got to be really committed, really passionate. And as I said, into the long term of, of, of this situation. And then I think you'll get true rewards. It, it's not a, it's not a quick fix. There's no quick fix. At all. It's a long-term plan, long-term strategic, strategic plan with partners, with people that you think can deliver and make your profession more accessible for people of non-traditional and traditional backgrounds. Thank you, Neil. I think that's really, really insightful and helpful advice uh, for our members. Um, and I totally, totally agree. I think the sort of the places that we're building and, and was responsible for maintaining as an industry need to be sort of built by the people who are living in them. And at the minute, we are as an industry completely underrepresented by. So that is really valuable advice. Thank you. Yeah, that that is so true. I mean, I say to my students, you know, the reason why I've got so many architects and architectural students that 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 come out of my sort of camp is because I say to them, you can change the way your society is built, your environment. Why are you sitting there and waiting for somebody who comes from a shire counties and I've got nothing against shire people counties, but who come from shire counties, but why are you getting someone who educationally, they're brilliant on the spectrum of education, tick, 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 tick. But they don't, they, a, a, a large proportion don't come from a diverse community. And you know, and I'm looking at uh, Joseph here. He lives in in Hackney. You said, was it? <laughs> right. He lives in Hackney. And 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 Emily, you you live in Tottenham, was it? You said. No, I also live in Hackney. I'm currently in yeah, Newcastle, a, but I also live yeah. in Hackney. <laughs> but look, Hackney's near to Tottenham, near to uh, uh, east part of London, etc. The communities there are multicultural. You you can walk down the streets. You're hearing languages all the time around you. You don't hear just the same uh, indigenous language of English. You hear in so many different languages. You walk, 
you can walk a hundred yards down the street and hear about 20 different dialects and languages. And so that means that you're fully immersed into those societies. You understand you've got friends who are different races, creeds, colors, religions, etc. And so you understand how they function. You understand how they live. You, you're living with them. But for somebody to come out and, and say, right, yes, I've been to the top architectural school and I think this would be a really good design for this community here. There's no connection. They would never allow me, well, I'm not an architect, but if I was an architect, to live in London and then start designing loads of um, green land for them. They'd never allow that. There'd be uproar. Why is he coming here and designing all of this, this, this? They would never allow it. So why are we allowing it? If you want to build in London, you can either live in London, immerse yourself, get to know the people, and the, and the people who live here give them the opportunities, the, the, the avenues that they could design their city and in the cities and towns for, for, for people who look like them, live like them, uh, and breathe like them. That is my biggest sort of passion that I say to students. And this is why so many of them want to become architects to design their cities in London or wherever they come from. I completely, completely agree, Neil. I think the reason that London is so amazing and, and the reason that it's sort of globally admired is because it is so multicultural. That is why people mm-hmm. want to come to London and that is why people sort of live and, and breathe London and and it is so popular. And the fact that as an industry, we're not sort of using the incredible talent and, and amount of diversity that is in London and including that in our architecture and in our developments and, and, and having people from all different cultures, races, classes input into this, into our industry is astonishing and hopefully will change. Can I talk about Glam Goes Global? Because I love my Glam yes. Goes Global. <laughs> yes, please. Sorry, I've been excited for this, for the whole conversation. <laughs> I nearly forgot about it. <laughs> yes, please right. tell us about this. So Glam Goes Global stands for Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Architecture and Me. And it bore out of a young lady who was, she was doing textiles, not my product I designed. She was uh, doing textile with a colleague of mine. But she didn't really fit into the class that she was in. And so the teacher said to her, look, go and work with Mr. Pinder. And it's the same syllabus, basically, product design. They're both product design using different materials. One uses textiles we use, uh, wood, metal and plastic or, you know, whatever material we want to use. So she came and uh, in my lesson and she would come back lunchtime and she was like a sponge. And in the end, her folder was absolutely amazing because she wanted to succeed in, in doing all these techniques. I mean, I didn't know anything about how to stitch sew, but I could give her advice about what designs and how to draw, et cetera, et cetera. And she was so infused that she said, and this was about two years ago, so she was in year 11 and she said, right, what I want to do is I just want to test and go to a college or somewhere where I might want to um, uh, study fashion or something like that. And I said, all right, get your folder together and we'll look at it. And she had a really nice folder together. And she went to a couple of places and, and some some woman basically killed her dead, just said, you know, you're never, she wanted to go Central St. Martin, this young lady. She said, oh, you're never getting Central St. Martin with a folder like that. And she came back to me nearly in tears. And it makes me want to cry every time I think of it. And she she came back, she said, there's no point me going on. And I said to her, 
there is. And so what happened is, is I thought, how can I infuse this young lady? How, what can I do? So all the kids know I wear Gucci. They know I love Louis Vuitton. I've got my belts on and I'm blinging sometimes in school, but most of the time anyway, right? And um, <laughs> so I was, I was sleeping this night and I thought, Gucci and Louis Vuitton, what can I do with them? And, and then it came to me, Gucci, architecture, Louis Vuitton and me. And rang my architect up, who I work with, Venetia Waldwindham, who I, is my partner on Celebrating Architecture Initiative. And she said, um, sounds good, but how are you going to do it, Neil? I said, I don't know. Like most, you know, ideas that you just think of, you don't know, but you just feel it. And then I got in contact. Then I met another architect and we because Venetia was doing sculpture in the city and various other things. And I said to this guy, Ramsey Yasser, and he runs a practice called Norma. And I said to him, look, I've got this idea. Let's, let's, let's see if we can work it out. And Ramsey took it away and he said, Neil, why don't you call it Glam? I said, what does that sound for? He said, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Architecture and Me. And that was it, born. So what we did for 2019, it, it, it was basically, no, 2020, it was going to be a workshop at an engineering practice called uh, Elliot Wood in, in in just off Tottenham Court, Court Road, and they gave us their studio to work on a Saturday. I was going to bring seven textile students, seven architecture students together for my school, and we was going to do a workshop. And then I organised tutors, architectural tutors, and fashion tutors to come, and and the architects were going to pair up with a fashion designer, fashion student. So you had this of fashion and architecture and we just it metamorphosized wearable architecture anyway cutting a long story short the pandemic happened so I had to rejiggle again and then we did a zoom we turned out to be a zoom workshop which we closed the London Festival of Architecture with but Glam Goes Global is a fusion between architecture and fashion and it gets people outside of their comfort zone. It's about wearable architecture. So you'll get a fashion student working with a, uh, a, an architecture student and they come up with fantastic wearable pieces of architecture. And we've, we've, uh, we did our second one in November and literally I used to go to a club called Go Global. So it was just called Glam to begin with. And and then after, I used to go to a club years ago called Go Global. And I thought, GGG, instead of LV, Glam goes global. And we connected to, I mean, literally Glam has gone global. So we're in the Caribbean, we're in Africa, we're in South America, we're in all over Europe. And um, we're in universities up and down the country. And the second one really was good. And so this summer, I thought, why don't we do a summer ball? And so Glam Goes Global is having a summer ball, Zoom workshop. And the thing, it's a level playing field for all because we really thought we didn't want anybody to go out and buy expensive materials. So everything that they make is from recycled, reusable materials in their house, what they would throw away. So the, dare I say, the Amazon packets, the, the milk bottles, et cetera, et cetera, or milk cartons, everything that you're far away, you turn that into a piece of wearable architecture. So it's sustainable. And one of my friends who is um, who's the dean of um, the Pratt Institute in New York, Harriet Harris, who's absolutely amazing. And so I, I rang Harriet up and she's always supported me. And I, and I said to her, look, I've got this idea. Da, 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 da. She said, do you know what that is, Neil? 
And I said, no. She said, it's a Trojan horse. And then it made me think, yes, a Trojan horse. What it does, the, the, the actual title, all the kids from non-traditional and traditional backgrounds, all they see is uh, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, architecture and me. So it's personalized to me. So everybody sees they've got ownership of it. And this is what we also tell the students. You have power because without you, the brands are not going to sell. Without you singing about their songs, the brands are not going to sell. So sing about it in their songs, the brand is not going to sell. But the brands are trying to make it look like they can do without you, but they can't. So what we've got is we've got Glam Goes Global, Summer Ball, where people take control. And that's how we get the young people to into these places they're in the room by the mere nature that they're taking part in this they're actually sitting in the room they're designing in the room and these people who think that they have got the money power and control are having to look and see what these young people are doing and then hopefully they will say let's give some of these young people apprenticeships let's give some of these young people opportunities with inside our businesses but if I'd gone to Gucci Louis Vuitton and say, sponsor me to do this mad idea, they'd say, get lost, you know, bam, <laughs> kick me into the long grass. But so that is how uh, Glam, and we got music. And, and when you hear the ads for Glam Goes Global Summer Ball that I've been working on with, with my students, so I, last thing, I, I got something called the Circular Economy of Education. And the circular economy of education is all my students, they come back to me at certain points and then help other students. When they get in practices, they say, right, sir, do you need, or they call me sir even even now, but I say to them, call me Neil. They, 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 they come back to me and say, look, I'm here. Do you want to do a portfolio session with anybody who wants to, um, to go to university? So we got portfolio workshops set up with architectural practice. So this circular economy of education, it comes back and it, and it rewards you tenfold, absolutely tenfold. That's our glam. And they're going to come back and they're going to be working on Glam Goes Global as well. And we've got fantastic tutors from the Royal College, Central St. Martins, Ravensbourne. We've got them from uh, the Institute in Jamaica, UK, where I've got a young lady in Bangladesh. I've got somebody in, in Canada, Peru, Bolivia. Uh, there's a fantastic woman in Bolivia, and she called Naomi Paymouse, connected to 63 different countries. And I co-hosted a, an event with her symposium a couple of weeks ago with Mexico. So you can see how the whole subliminal parallel work and collaborations is taking is is taking shape, and we're and we're making these systems to go with it. And it sounds like an incredible initiative. And and as you said before, this kind of initiative is exactly how you sort of make the industry more attractive to, to mm -hmm. younger people. And the synergies between sort of fashion and architecture and cr any creative sort of topics by, use, by using these initiatives, that's how we get these people with, with the creativity into the industry. And, and perhaps someone who thought they wanted a career in fashion comes mm -hmm. into the real estate industry, ends up in architecture and or vice yeah, exactly. versa it's it's this is how how you can do it and it sounds like an incredible initiative especially bringing in people from sort of all over the world it seems it sounds amazing and I'm very excited to hear how the summer ball goes 
Yeah. <laughs> so referring back to your last question <laughs> after all that. Yes, top, top three pieces of advice for young people considering a career in architecture, the built environment, or even perhaps fashion. Well, I would say, let me use this. So as I said to you, I think power, control and money, they have it all. You have the digitalization where a year ago, we wouldn't have been doing what we're doing now. Definitely not. Five years ago, young people have started Snapchatting. They started connecting to each other through Instagram, all of these different multi-digital platforms. And I don't think that the the industry, the high bad industry, actually realized what was going on. And so this year has come about. So the young people, you got the power. You've got the control and you will earn the money. But what you have to do is follow your passion. You have to follow your passion because if your passion is your work, it doesn't feel like work. You would do it 24-7. If you want to earn money, just get a job. But you have to follow your passion. And all of us have a passion. All of us have a skill. There isn't one person that hasn't been born with a passion or a skill. It just it lurks beneath the surface for you to discover. And maybe you need a teacher, a mentor, uh, a guiding light. You see it on, on the pictures, digital forms of communication. All of those medias can spark your passion. But it's got to be done from passion first. And as I said, Daniel Lieberskin said how to be an architect. Go to school. He crossed that out. Drafting tools. He crossed that out. Building codes. He crossed that out. Fashion of architecture, you cross that out. Travel, read a book, and I'll add the last one, as I said in the beginning, be a DJ. And if you follow that, you're following your passion. That's absolutely brilliant advice. So that brings our conversation to a close. Thank you so much for your time, Neil, and for an incredibly insightful conversation. London Property Alliance will continue with its diversity, equality, and inclusion work stream, and will be publishing a further four guidebooks focusing on sexuality, disability, social mobility, and religion. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.